Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. It's Saturday afternoon and that means it's time to hear from another Christian and about their life testimony and ministry. Just a reminder, this programme is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, which is the monthly publication I help edit. If you would like a free sample copy of the very latest issue of that magazine, you can head to our website. It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Just fill out the form and we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the very latest issue. But today on the profile, I'm joined by Glenn Scrivener. Glenn is an evangelist and a speaker, and we're going to hear about his life and his ministry. So, Glenn, welcome to the program today. It's great to be here. Thanks. So I wanted to start, as we always do here on The Profile, by going back to the beginning, asking you about life growing up. And I guess some people might be able to tell already from your accent uh, that uh, you may not have been entirely always based in this country. Is that correct? I don't know. I think I've been pomified a little bit. I grew up in <laughs> Australia, but I've lived in the UK for half my life now, more than half my life now. So I've married a, a girl from Ireland and uh, we're now living in Eastbourne in the UK. We've been there for about 10 years. But uh, yeah, grew up in Australia until I was about 14. Sunny Australia. Well, Canberra uh, is not so sunny. It's, really? it's only a couple of, of hours from the ski fields, actually, and it'll snow for like a week every year wow. uh, in Canberra. It gets, wow. it gets quite cold in the, in the winter. And where did um, Christian faith come into this? Was this something that was um, around in your childhood? Sure. I went to church growing up, and uh, I was the kid in Sunday school who was always getting the answers right. I figured <laughs> from an early age, if you say Jesus, you're onto a winner. So I, yeah, I think I went along to, you know, Church groups, went along to youth groups, mm-hmm. went away to Christian camps and gave my life to Jesus a thousand times, I think, in my teenage years. And I was, I was that kind of keen uh, teenage Christian. Um, but I think by the end of when I was about 17 years old, I, I think I'd, I had given my life to Jesus about a thousand times <laughs> and I never felt like he was buying what I was selling. I, really? I, I, yeah, I felt like I was kind of knocking on heaven's door and he was hiding behind the couch, I think. Uh, not that interested in me. Never, I never got the feeling that I was looking for, I think. I think I expected there to be fireworks in the sky and mm-hmm. the guy from X Factor saying, you're now born again, or <laughs> something like that. And I never got that sensation. And so I guess aged about 17, 18, I kind of uh, walked away from, I left home. And I kind of left my childhood faith uh, as well when I went away to university. So that, that was kind of my, my upbringing. And whereabouts was university? So university uh, was over here in Oxford. So I went there uh, for a few years, yeah. Wow. And during that time, you say you kind of lost faith? Yeah, I would have called myself a Christian and sort of defended the Christian corner. I, uh, I studied uh, some philosophy in my degree and I was always, you know, I did the philosophy of religion module and I was always sticking up for the notion that there's some kind of deity up there, but not really feeling it at all. And I guess looking back, I can, I can see why, because I think the notion that there's some kind of a deity is not a particularly attractive notion. I think the idea that there's a big guy in the sky, um, it, it never actually did it for me. Mm. I still stood up for the idea. Mm. Um, and so I would have called myself a God believer. Mm-hmm. But I think by the end of university, uh, really my, my big goal was to play cricket for the university because if you play for Oxford against Cambridge in the varsity match, you get to play at Lords okay. and you get your full blue. And it's, it's uh, yeah, it was the pinnacle. Mm. And, it's, uh, and for, for those who don't like cricket, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I really am sorry that you, you should like cricket. It's, it's God's own game. But um, 
I was never happier than when I was chasing a little red ball around a green field. And so that was my big goal, to play in the varsity game. And I fell agonizingly short of that goal in my third year. And that really drove me back to my knees and drove me back to church. And why, why did it do that? Why would um, not getting what you wanted in a sporting field drive you into a church? I think because we're all looking for gods, actually. We're all chasing gods uh, with a little g. And uh, cricket was my god. And, uh, and it became very obvious that cricket was a god that had failed. Um, you know, I, I desperately wanted to get into the, the Wisden Cricketing Almanac. If, 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 if there are any cricketing tragics watching or listening, you'll know the Wisden Cricketing Almanac. It lists all the most important cricket games that have happened in that year. And uh, I'm here to tell you that I am indeed in the 136th edition of the Wisden Cricketing Almanac. Wow. I'm on page 886. Wow. I'm halfway down the page in six-point font. And my <laughs> name is misspelt. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> I know. That must be gutting. <laughs> that was the gutting thing. And you sort of, you see that. And this is what I've been like aiming for this right. is it you know Chris you know cricket is life and then it felt like death yeah. when cr- cricket didn't work and 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 I guess church is what I knew and I started going back to church at the end of university and I remember just hating the preacher every Sunday and it was it was hilarious really because I would sit at the very back like right at the edge so I could slip away at the end and I would go and I would just fold my arms and I would just give the preacher evils the whole time. And, and he, he tried to be really cool and relevant and <laughs> hip and contemporary and, you know, put in all these references to EastEnders and things. And I just sat there hating him and then coming back next week hmm. and hating him and coming back next week. <laughs> and it's very funny as a preacher now, I sort of look out at the, you know, yeah. <laughs> the people listening. <laughs> and if anyone's sort of, you know, giving yeah. me the evils, I, saw, I think to myself, you wait, you wait. You know, God's got you in his tractor beam. So I think in the background really was a, a praying mother wow. who for two decades is, you know, really praying for her son. And, and, and really, I found myself drawn back to Christian faith. And then it was just a friend inviting me to open up the, the Bible with him. And, and we read through Luke's gospel. And it was fascinating for me because um, the passage from my childhood that had really haunted me was always the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this scene where Jesus, he's making the ultimate prayer of commitment, if you like. You know, he's, he's laying it all out there for God and saying, your will be done, face pressed into the mud. And I remember thinking as a teenager, ah, oh, that's, I need to copy Jesus. Hmm. You know, I even had the bracelet. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Jesus, what would WWJD? Jesus would go into the garden and he would give his life to God in this melodramatic way. And in my teenage years, I would, I would literally volunteer to walk my dog to a, like a foresty area to like a clearing late at night so by moonlight I could do what Jesus did and press my face into the mud and say your will be done and that was kind of my understanding my understanding was Jesus gave his life to God now what about you Mm. you know you give your life to God Mm. and so that was that was my teenage years and so when we came to Luke's gospel me me and my friends and uh, we came to the garden of Gethsemane and uh, and I just said to him "I, I don't think I can handle this passage I don't think I can do it like Jesus and my friend was very wise. He just said, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? I was like, no, no not really. Well, maybe a little, but you know, <laughs> aren't we meant to copy Jesus? And my friend just laughed and said, no, Glenn, in this story, you are not Jesus. You are Peter. And what's Peter doing in the story? Sleeping, failing, rubbish, foolish Peter, you know, who talked a big game. He was going to follow Jesus to the end and he fails and Jesus prays for him. And that's what Gethsemane is about. That's what the cross is about. That's what the whole Bible's about. It's not you giving your life for God. It's him giving his life for you. 
And really, it was just that massive switch around. Huge uh, shift in your thinking. Huge shift. It's not my life given to God. It's his, his life given for me. And I guess that's the gospel coming alive in my heart. And I guess I'd, I'd date, I don't know, I, you know, maybe I was born again when I was 13 and mm-hmm. I first, you know, prayed. Maybe I was born again when I was five. I don't know. But I date the time when I really understood the gospel mm. from uh, really about age 21. Yeah. Because you said before that the difficulty in your latter teenage years going to university was you kind of lacked this feeling and it, it just didn't all quite click together and you were from a Christian background and you right. committed your life over and over and over again, but that right. feeling was missing. So when you found God again in that moment of being explained to you that it's yeah. not about you, it's about what God has done for you, right. did, did that, was there a feeling that came then that there, everything kind of clicked into place? There was a feeling, but the feeling comes second, doesn't it? The feeling comes in response to the joy of good news. If it's all about me working up a feeling, and so often we talk about faith in those ways. We, we think that faith is this feeling of believingness that I've got to nurse within my heart. And that's what God really likes. So I'd better try and drum up this feeling of faith um, that, you know, you cannot push faith out of you. You know, you can't push love out of you. You know, if I, if I say to you right now, you know, love God, come on, love, love him more. Okay, 10% more, turn up the dial. On. You know, you cannot command love. Mm, yeah. Love's got to be pulled out of you by something that's more glorious. And I guess I was all the time thinking about me and my heart and my feelings. But what it is that's going to transform my feelings is looking up to Christ and mm. seeing him given for me, even though I'm rubbish. That good news is what actually transforms the heart and the feelings follow. So, yeah, absolutely, the feelings follow. But when they come first, it can be a crushing burden. So what came next after this point of, um, you say you don't know exactly when you were born again, but let's say yeah. that was the important let's moment say, yeah. where you discovered that truth, as you say, of the gospel. What happened after that? I, uh, I went into a graduate program. I went back to Australia and uh, I was trying to figure out, do I belong in Australia? Do I belong in England? And uh, I joined the most rock and roll department in the civil service in Australia. It's called the public service. It was the, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which was <laughs> even more... doesn't sound very no, rock and roll. <laughs> no, it's, it's even less glamorous than it sounds. And I, I was in the, uh, I was in the, um, uh, the publications department and, I, and my job was really to make sure that the manufacturing statistics from this quarter were formatted in in the tables the same way as the uh, statistics from the last quarter. Fascinating. Fascinating. And uh, and so I did not last long (laughs) in that (laughs) show. And uh, and all the while, I'm getting very excited about Jesus, mm. and I'm spending my whole time telling people about Jesus, and I'm dragging people along to lunchtime services, and I'm, I'm the big mouth shooting my mouth off about Jesus every which way I can. And it, I'm a slow learner because it, it, it dawned on me quite late that, hey, you can actually do this. There's, there are people who do this, you know, as a job. And um, at that stage, my mother was living in London. And she was going to All Souls Langham Place, big church in the center of London. And they were looking for lay assistants. And a lay assistant is uh, a glorified slave. (laughs) And you just, for a year, I cleaned a thousand loos in one year. Uh, But all the while, you've got your... This was back in the day when we had Walkmans. Uh, you you yes. wouldn't you wouldn't know about this. I Sam. do. I, I, I had remember? a Walkman. Yeah, Did I remember you? Walkmans. Yeah. And so you remember winding up the tape I with do. the pencil through the cassette yeah. and all of that, and and you know when the when the batteries run out, you've got to you know <laughs> rub them together and put them back in. So I I, I worked my way through the All Souls tape library okay. and just listening to old John Stott sermons, wow. and there was loads of old Billy Graham sermons and things like that, and and then you'd actually you know at lunch you'd get to sit down and have lunch with John Stott mm. and Rico Tice and Paul Black. And Richard Buse and all these these great people on staff. So that was a that was a massive year for me. Um, I think some of that um, servant 
Uh, nature of the role really helped me, uh, but also getting great theology and just seeing really servant-hearted people. You know, you, uh, you know, you see John Stott, who's written forty-plus books, and 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 he lived with such uh, integrity. I mean. Uh, you would never know that he got a single royalty check you know, from, from the state of his flat. I mean, it was just so <laughs> sparse and spartan, yeah. almost monastic. Yeah. And just his, his, and you did come away from him with the sense that you were the most important person in that room. And, mm. and he was, you know, mm. and you almost, you almost forgot to ask him questions because he was spending the whole time yeah. interested in you. And, yeah. and so just, just that year was absolutely formative for me. And, uh, and in a sense, I've never looked back. I've always worked in Christian ministry mm-hmm. uh, since that time in a, at about 2000. Wow. I know one of your big kind of passions today is very obvious in a lot of the work you do is, is evangelism, is mm-hmm. in sharing the gospel with others and things related to that, so maybe even apologetics as well. Where do you think that came from? Is that something mm. you discovered during that year of listening to John Stott, both on tapes and in person? Or yeah. was, it, was it later things where and that clicked into place? All the Billy Graham sermons and, and, and being with Rico Tice as well, so the author of the Christianity Explored courses. And, um, I mean, his example is infectious. Um, his passion for just sitting down with other people and reading the Bible with mm. other people, and his... His passion for getting the gospel out there is is massively infectious. Um, so I, yeah, I think I've always had that passion for preaching about Jesus. I, I, I just heard a sermon yesterday from Jeremiah chapter twenty. You know, Jeremiah the prophet says, you know, the word is like a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. And I think I, I have had that sense um, that it's it's more work for me not to be evangelistic than, <laughs> than to be evangelistic. It, it kind of comes out of me. So. I've always kind of been like that, but like I say, I'm a slow learner. It yeah. took me it took me a long time for my wife to kind of sort of say, "Glenn, you know you're an, ev- an evangelist." <laughs> I was like, "Am I?" Like, like she almost slapped me. She's not a violent woman, <laughs> but she's like, can, "How can you not know yourself? How can you have so little self knowledge?" That is really interesting because that is often the way, not only with spiritual gifts, but just in tasks yeah. that people do where right. they think they're not very good at something. Right. It takes someone else to come along and say, "Actually, right. you know, you're really gifted in that." Yeah, yeah. It takes other people to identify this. I think we're so. People often talk about you know the call and when did you have the call to ministry and and quite often people imagine that you're meant to be perched on the end of your bed by yourself with your individual Bible on on your lap and you have a private moment that's just you and Jesus and that's the only way that the call can happen um, and I think that just ignores the way it happens like throughout the New Testament and it, it ignores the way it happens throughout church history you know I, I think about um, John Calvin he didn't want to be in Geneva you know like people almost wrestled him to the ground. Is it, you got to stay here. You know that was his call, right? Yeah. His call came through people, and, and I think that's part of what laying on of hands is all about. It's saying there is this corporate recognition of your gifting and of you as a gift. So mm. it definitely takes other people to recognize mm. what's what's within you. Definitely. So how did you first meet your wife, Emma? Ah, we were at university together. Um, and I really liked her, and she thought I was a total jerk, a total loser. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I know. I, I think she's coming around to me. Like, like it's, <laughs> I hope it's, so by now. It's taking a while, but I, I've almost cracked it. But she, <laughs> yeah, she thought I was weird, and, and she was probably right. Um, we were both going out with different people at university, and uh, but I, I remember even, even praying that I would get together with Emma. <laughs> um, naughty prayer, because I was with somebody else. Um, oh, wow. That I, is a scandal. Yeah, it is, that is a scandal. <laughs> so, Amazing that God answered that one, eh? That's true. It, it is. It really is, in a very funny way. Because, <laughs> yeah, so she, I mean, she t- tells her, her own story brilliantly in a, in a book called A New Name, and uh, 
so you know I won't steal her thunder or try to tell her story. But uh, essentially, we we really got together when I was working at All Souls in 2000, and uh, she actually ended up um, having the same job as me the year after me. So she was a lay assistant the year after me, and we sort of got together. But then, in that year 2000 2001, I got deported back to Australia. Deported. Well, I was required to leave the country within oh, no. 10 days' time or face £10,000 fine and six months in prison. So. Why, why was that? Just, it's the just home the office. Visa, just the visa. It's the visa. You know, as with my ancestors, I was just ceremonious, unceremoniously <laughs> kicked out of the country as a criminal. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, had to, I had to leave with, okay. with like a couple of weeks' notice. Right, and, right. Uh, and we were kind of getting together. Mm. And then, oh, no, I'm going back to Australia. And I sort of thought that was it. I'm back to Australia. And oh, well. Um, but we just started emailing each other quite a bit. And again, I'm a slow learner because at some stage, like three months in, I'm realizing that I'm spending about two hours a day emailing this one person. <laughs> <laughs> and judging by her output, she's spending similar time with yeah. me. Maybe we're more than friends. <laughs> <laughs> and so I eventually plucked up the courage and I sent the sort of the, the tell-all email. And uh, Emma, are you sitting down? I think I love you. I, I, yes, I think I love you. And uh, as soon as I hit send on that email, I immediately regretted it. I said, no, she probably doesn't think the same way. And I, I decided to try and hack, hin- hack into her Hotmail inbox. You know, oh, wow. I tried every, every sort of password to I could think of to delete the email. And, uh, and then she, she left me hanging, right, for another two days before she responds to me. Oh, you know, we've been emailing a, each other daily. That's a long time to that be is waiting. A long, but I've forgiven her. I forget, but it's, it's just that I raise it temper, you know, every, every now and again just to keep her on a medal. But um, she eventually emailed back and said, yes, I feel the same way, but you're... Phew. Relief. Relief. Big relief. But then she said, you're 12,000 miles away and you have no visa, so... It's your call, bro. Um, and then God just opened doors in amazing ways. I came back into uh, to London working in churches, and we got married in 2003. Amazing. And there's no danger of you being deported now, I hope. I've got, I've got the green card now. Excellent. So, you know. But that's, that's not the only reason I married Emma. But, you know, it was helpful. <laughs> You're not about to get a call saying you've got two weeks to leave. No, I hope not. I hope not. You mentioned, actually, Emma had written a book, couple of books, I think. Right. And... Um, I know in those books she's been very honest about mm. some of her own personal background and struggles, um, particularly with eating disorders. Mm. I wanted to ask from, from your perspective as a husband of trying to help your wife through such a difficult um, mm. issue, how has that been for you? Yeah, you feel very impotent. Um, you know, Emma suffered with life-threatening anorexia both as a teenager and then again after we were married. Um, and yeah, you, you feel utterly powerless and you see what addiction does to people. Um, it makes you believe in what you know theologians have called the bondage of the will, um, which is that you know human nature we go after little gods, mm-hmm. as we've already mentioned, and those little gods are unworthy things. Maybe it's playing cricket, maybe it's being thin, whatever it is. Um, it kind of recreates you in its image, and it sends you down a rabbit trail, and you your life becomes ever more diminished as you serve this little god and. That's the human heart, actually. Mm. Um, And you see it really at the sharp end with an addiction. Um, And you feel the powerlessness of it. And you feel, once again, um, that it's got to be good news from outside your loved one that's going to turn their heart, that's going to capture them, that's going to give them the good news. You feel very much that. You feel very much um, the priesthood of Christ was very precious to us both, the priesthood of Christ, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he's praying for us both. Mm. So that even in the dark and even when Emma feels like God is miles away, 
she is carried on the heart of her great high priest and her position with God is not as good as her you know, position in her feelings. Mm. It's not as good as her position down in the pits. Her position with God is as good as Christ. Her relationship with, with God is as good as Christ's relationship with God. And he lifts her. He carries her. And he carries me. So getting in touch with some of those truths was absolutely massive. And, um, and one sort of image that, that really stuck with me at the time was in trying to care for someone who was in a dark place. It was almost as though we were, we were in this uh, dance floor. And everyone's over there, and they're having a great time in the light, and we're sort of huddled together in the dark. And I think for a long time in that position, I thought that my, my job was just to huddle together with Emma. Mm. Um, and increasingly, I think God was showing me, actually, really the job is to dance back into the light, mm. to get back into Christian community. Um, and really, it's, it's the church together um, as we carry one another that helps you through times like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a big, a, a big learning time for us both. There's the bondage of the world, the, the priesthood of Christ, and just the importance of, of church family, just ordinary church family mm-hmm. that can carry you through times mm-hmm. like that. I guess as well as, as an evangelist, one of the most common questions must be, what about suffering? What yeah. about this terrible yeah, yeah. thing I'm going through? Yeah. And I suppose you've had that on a personal level for yourself. This isn't right. just a kind of theoretical issue, is it? Right. And and I think as evangelists or just, just people wanting to be witnesses in their everyday life, we should welcome that question. We should think, oh, fantastic, suffering, brilliant. We're on home turf. You know, <laughs> when the Christian is talking about suffering, we're on home turf. We're not playing away from home. We're This, this is our thing. We follow a crucified savior, right? <laughs> um, the entire Christian story, you know, it might begin in a garden and it finishes in the great city but for you know 66 books in between it's about struggle and death and pain and how do we get from one place to the other through the struggle death blood sweat and tears of christ so to talk about suffering i think you're really doing business with people and and you know i'm I'm always saying to people evangelism is just pastoring non-christians that's all that it you know pastoral care is just evangelizing christians but evangelism is just pastoring non-Christians. And, and one, of the, one of the huge things that I'm always saying to people in evangelistic situations is, yeah, I don't know how I couldn't, could have gotten through those years without Jesus, you know. And exploring that is just huge in evangelism and just turning the, turning the tables and just saying, you know, I know in suffering that I've got a God with scars. I've got a God who has wept. I've got a God who has bled, and he promises to be with me through suffering. How do you get through? How do you do Because if I believed that I was just a biological survival machine clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction, and I was having the kind of time that you're having, I don't know why I'd keep going. How do you get through? You know, so I, I think when, when these suffering questions come up, um, in, in one sense, we should really welcome those questions because now we're really dealing with the big issues of life and now we can really preach Christ into that situation. That's such a fascinating answer because I think people will really resonate with that and yet at the same time think, oh, but 
I'm still scared when that question comes up. I, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think there, are, there have been so many different Christian answers to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Sometimes I'm almost yeah. thinking, well, which one do I go to here? Right. I mean, right. you just very eloquently explained the, the kind of apologetic of, well, Jesus suffered right. and, and went, went that direction. Is that always the direction you go in, or are there other ways to tackle the same question as well? Yeah, there's loads of ways to go at it. Um, I mean, one thing to do is, if you've got the time... And if they'll let you, just, just to sort of say, yeah, no, that is a big problem. And to say, um, you should have the biggest problem if suffering is not a problem. Like, if, if suffering is not a problem for you, mm. you've got the wrong worldview, mm. right? Yeah. There are two natural responses to suffering, chaos or karma. You know, so Richard Dawkins, um, the atheistic response is the chaos mm-hmm. response, which is just to say there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just, it's, yeah. it sucks, right? But at that stage, you don't have a problem with evil. Right, it just is. There's no problem with evil, right? There's li- and yet everything in you is outraged at evil, yeah. which is interesting. So that's the chaos answer, and that appeals to us in the West. In more traditional cultures, they have the karma answer, which is basically that if you unleash evil, evil will come back to you. And and there's there's something built into the universe. There's this justice woven into the universe, which means there is no such thing as unjust suffering, mm. right? Okay. So yeah. if you're suffering, you can't ask the why question. You can't ask the why question. Well, it's probably you, right? It's either you or your ancestors. You know, some. So with with karma, yeah. you can't ask the why question. With chaos, you can't ask the why question. Um, let me invite you into the into the Christian worldview in which you can ask the why question. Um, I think I think it's a really good thing to have a problem with evil. So with Christ, you're able to have a problem with evil. There is Jesus, and he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he's angry and he's crying. He's angry because this is not the way things should be. He's crying because this is not the way things should be. So he's, a, he's able to enter into this and say evil should not be, but he's also got an answer to it. So, again, what you've just so well put there is, I guess, what you spend a lot of your time doing now. Do you want to mm-hmm. bring us up to date with your story of what you currently spend your time doing? So I was uh, ordained in the Church of England, and I did my, uh, my stint as a curate, which is sort of a, a vicar with your L plates on, and I did that for four years uh, at a church in Eastbourne, uh, and we still go to that church in Eastbourne. Uh, I'm no longer working uh, for that church. I now work for a charity called Speak Life, and that frees me up to go around the place and shoot my mouth off about Jesus. And, <laughs> and then I try to equip Christians in their witness so try to train up individual evangelists, but also equip um, Christians in their everyday life of witness and then produce resources. That's great. And I wanted to talk specifically about some of these videos because they will mm. be very well known to people. Um, you've had some amazing success with a lot of the videos you put out have gone, certainly within the Christian world, gone viral. Yeah, I mean, uh, He Came Down was seen 400,000 times wow. last year, which was, which was great. And this was your Christmas video. Do you want right. to explain a bit about the, the premise behind this video for those who haven't seen it and how they can watch it? We, we filmed a nativity where all all the actors had Down syndrome. And so the shepherds, the kings, baby Jesus has Down syndrome. And it was really kind of to highlight in the news this time last year, uh, Sally Phillips put out this documentary called A World Without Downs, uh, in which uh, she was just asking the question, um, do we really want to have these prenatal tests for Down syndrome in every single country in which these have been adopted? 100% or 99% of all babies with Down syndrome are aborted. Um, even in this country without that test, 90% of all babies who are found to have Down syndrome are aborted. And there's just this this real culture of death and this real sense that we are the strong and we will determine 
who we will allow into our society and we don't want the weak and suffering is to be eliminated and therefore sufferers must be eliminated and there's that, that real undercurrent. And I just thought, well, how do, you, how do you counter that very strong narrative? I thought the best thing to do is just to tell the Christmas story again because here we've got the God who becomes weak, the God who becomes marginalized, the God who becomes a baby speechless. Um, and, and let's just go one step further. You know, let's, let's have Jesus not just encompassing our flesh, but let, let him take on an extra chromosome too, right? <laughs> Same as all the others in, in this Down syndrome nativity. Yeah, like I say, about 400,000 kind of watched that. And, and I love that. I love, I love telling stories with Christ at the center and just upending our cultural notions of things. And that's, that's what we try to do with, with all our videos. We've, we've had uh, six different Christmas campaigns. We've got one coming up uh, for this year. And if you want to hear more about those amazing Christmas videos that Glenn has been very busy creating, do stick around. We're going to be talking more about them in part two. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. If you'd like a free sample copy of the magazine that sponsors this show, why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But for now, let's get into the second part of my interview with the evangelist Glenn Scrivener. The exciting news yeah. is that you are again going to put together not just one video this time, but a whole series of videos right. um, with this sort of evangelistic heart behind them so people can share them on social media. I'd love to hear more about them. What have you got up your sleeve? We've got up our sleeve. Well, I mean, a lot of people, they, they kind of date when Christmas begins as when the John Lewis commercial comes out yeah. or when, you know, when holidays are coming, for, you know, the, the Coca-Cola advert comes out. And uh, this has become this really big thing culturally. The John Lewis, the Sainsbury's, everyone's in on the act. Um, can we occupy that space with really high quality Christmas films that actually preach the Christmas message and don't just sell toasters. Like, can we, can we actually preach the Christmas message? So our big idea is uh, these four episodes that tell the story of Will, who is kind of this meet-the-parents loser boyfriend trying to ingratiate himself with the in-laws. He doesn't understand all the Christmas ins and outs of this new family. He's an outsider. And, uh, and yet he has an encounter with the first century nativity and I can't say any more or I'd have to kill you. But Ooh, uh, Please don't then. Please, <laughs> please refrain from talking anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, we're really excited about it. We've, we've got uh, professional directors, producers, cast and crew, high-end kit. We're filming in a million-dollar house. Are million... you really filming in a million-dollar house? Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. amazing. No expense spared. Uh, so we're, we're really pushing the boat out this Christmas. Wow. We want to reach millions. So if people can get excited about it. I'm uh, already excited. Yeah. I'm eager to watch it. So... Uh, yeah, how can I watch these videos? So, uh, again, if you go to speaklife.org.uk slash videos uh, or like us on Facebook, that's, that's where it's going to go uh, first. So, Speak Life UK on Facebook and get sharing. I think the earliest or one of the earlier ones you did was called The King's English. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, this was around the time of the big anniversary of the King James right. Bible. 2011, yeah. You explain what you did and then we'll hear a bit of it. Okay, so how do you encapsulate the impact of the Bible on the modern world? And you could talk about its impact on education and healthcare and um, a thousand different things. But one thing it's had an impact on is language. 
And uh, it, it seems to me that there are, you know, you cannot go a day without saying a King James phrase. You just can't. It's, <laughs> it's impacted our, our language more than anything else, more than the works of Shakespeare. Um, and so I thought, what's the best way to communicate that fact? I thought, well, let's put a hundred different phrases into a three-minute video. A hundred phrases in three minutes. In rhyming couplets. Yeah. Incredible. What a challenge. Uh, Shall we have a listen to okay. how, how you did it? Here we go. <laughs> this is the King's English. God forbid the powers that be forgetting the beginning of the KJV. It's put words in our mouth for 400 years. Turn the world upside down. So here's my three cheers. As a sign of the times, I'll sing its praises. Shout from the rooftops 100 phrases. Miserable comforters may cast dispersions. I'll do this in remembrance of the authorised version. Like a fiery dart, I made haste to start. Then fell by the wayside, was cut to the heart. In the beginning, it seemed easy game. How the mighty have fallen, I was put to shame. This labour of love turned to worldly care. My dream became my cross to bear. Well, there you go. That's just a very small snippet of that incredible attempt to get a uh, hundred phrases from the King James Bible into a three-minute video. If you want to watch the whole thing, then do go to the Speak Life website. You talk about how you utilise the calendar. Mm. And I think maybe one of the most controversial times of the year from a Christian point of view, where Christians have very, very strong feelings about how do we celebrate this or do we celebrate this, is, of course, Halloween. Mm. Um, And you did a very interesting spin on this with one of the videos that you put out. It's called Halloween Trick or Treat. Again, do you want to just explain a bit about it and then maybe we'll have a listen? Well, Jonathan Carswell from Ten of Those said, um, Glenn, can you come up with a video that would be an evangelistic resource that, that takes advantage of, of Halloween? Because, it, I mean, it is, in terms of retail spend, it's the second biggest festival after Christmas. Uh, it's, become, it's become huge, actually, in the UK. And so, in a sense, he sort of passed me this poison chalice. <laughs> you know, how, how am I going to navigate uh, these different responses to Halloween within the Christian community. And I thought the way to do that is to ignore the Christian community and to make, truly make it evangelistic, to truly make it something that's, that's you know, trying to preach to, to non-Christians. Mm. And so that's what we tried to do. We tried to tell this, uh, this story of Christ entering into the darkness and the evil and coming out to feasting joy. That's mm. the sort of the Christian story. And I think one way of looking at Halloween, and there are all sorts of debates about the history of it, but one way of looking at Halloween is that really it is blowing a raspberry to the forces of evil and and saying, okay, let's give you one last hurrah, but you'll be swallowed up by the light of All Saints Day. Mm. And, and, and so I, I just kind of tapped into that narrative yeah. and said, well, that's like the gospel. The gospel goes down into darkness with the cross, yeah. rises up into light. So I, I, I tried to go over the Christian disputes about it. Mm. And, and you, it, you yeah. did make it, I think... Um, not not super scary, but you did right. make it scary, right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because to begin with, it was going to be an animation. Okay. And we ran out of time to make it an animation because that that's, it just takes ages. Um, and so that was going to be quite jokey kind of. Yeah. So when you don't make it an animation and when you dress up kids yeah. and, and, you know, we got the smoke machine out yeah. and we, were, we set it in a churchyard and there's me in this sort of, you know, big uh, cloak. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit scary. And did actually. you get much uh, kind of pushback from Christians saying we're not sure about this? Not really. Really? Not really. And what's fascinating to me is, is the people who are most dead set against Halloween. So often they come to me and say, I, I love your video. Yeah, you're preaching the truth about Halloween. And, and it's, it's so interesting. You make something pretty 
<laughs> and, and, and it really uh, gets to the heart of, of people. But I wonder, though, if that is because, as you say, it was literally preaching the gospel through Halloween. Right. So even if you're a Christian right. who has questions about Halloween, you right. can kind of see almost the greater good, if that makes sense. Let's unite in the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, you need to watch the video to get the full feel <laughs> of it. But let's just have a, a short snippet of it so you can get a feel for uh, the way you went about this. In preposterous pageants and dress diabolic, they hand to the dam just one final frolic. You see, with the light of the dawn on the morrow, the sunrise will swallow such darkness and sorrow. The future is futile for forces of evil, and so they did scorn them in times medieval. But this is the nature of shadow and gloom. In the gleaming of glory, there can be no room. What force is resourced by the echoing black? When the brightness ignites, can the shadow push back? These forces of darkness, if such can be called, are banished by brilliance, by blazing enthralled. So the Bible begins with this four-resolved fight. For a moment the darkness, then let there be light. If you want to watch the whole video, then again, do go to the Speak Life website. Um, great video to use um, around the time of Halloween in right. church, or as mm-hmm. you say, you, you really made this with an evangelistic heart that it would reach people who aren't Christians. And another one, uh, just finally, another video I wanted to mention, and again, many people would have seen this already, but it's always interesting to hear the kind of thinking behind it for mm-hmm. many of us who've seen these videos and think, well, wh- why did you do it like that? And that one is To End All Wars, right. which of course was released um, around Remembrance Sunday, mm-hmm. Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to again explain a bit of the thinking behind why you did this and how you went about it? I think the, the whole idea of Jesus being the anti-Zeus, you know, um, not the God with the thunderbolt. Um, but the God who takes the thunderbolt um, in order to offer you peace. Um, I, I, I think that, that preaches, doesn't it? Um, and once again, you know, Remembrance Day is, is just a, a fact in our calendar. And, and I just wanted to make use of that. We, we sort of made the video and, and it has quite an uplifting, exultant ending. And people have sometimes sort of said... Um, it's unfortunate to have such an exultant ending because if you're using it in a Remembrance Day service, it's hard to bridge out of that, you know, if, if you want to be somber. Um, but actually, all our videos are made for Facebook. They're made for Twitter. They're made for YouTube. Mm. They're, they're made to be viewed online. Mm. I think we'd make different videos if we were just trying to make a three-minute video for a church service. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to reach people where they are. Um, and so that's, that's why we shape our videos the way that we do. We, we, we want to go viral. Well, let's uh, again have a short listen to this uh, video, which was released around Remembrance Day. It's called To End All Wars. What causes war? The old book asks, beyond the history, beneath the masks, begins a want, becomes a will, demands its way, prepares to kill. The wars we mark as long ago are close to home. They're all we know. What ceases war? The pressing question. What can halt inborn aggression? To end all wars and retribution, war itself is no solution. Can terror end all terror now? Brute force subdue itself and bow? Can darkness drive out darkened dread, or death extinguish death instead? So you mentioned there, uh, Glenn, about social media and how that's mm-hmm. really the main target for these for these videos. And I know it's uh, Twitter and Facebook, the rest of it, is something you're very heavily engaged in. And I think it was actually at the um, 
the Premier Digital Conference last year, Mm -hmm. um, I heard you speak about this. There was a really interesting seminar about how do we act as Christians online. And you made a really good point that, especially with things like Twitter and Facebook, when you read it through, all you're seeing is ideology. All you're reading is beliefs. Here's my opinion. Here's what I think. And you made the point that sometimes can we forget there's a real person behind those beliefs, even if they're beliefs we disagree with. And this is something that a lot of Christians are speaking a lot about now, about how can we change the tone of some of this online conversation? Even in the Christian world, I can think of um, times gone by where it's got pretty nasty between Christians online. Are are you hopeful about the future? I mean, let's bear in mind this is quite a new medium still. Can we move past this, not just in the church, but in wider society and have more fruitful conversations online? I hope so. It can get pretty poisonous on the scuttling underbelly of the comment sections of some blogs, you know. Um, I mean, I I used to frequent a lot of atheist blogs quite a bit and, and just, just try to be a Christian presence and a voice just pushing back on some ideas and, and, and trying to be a cheerful, chip, just sort of strike a tone of just uh, joyful buoyancy <laughs> um, in amongst. But, but some of the poisonous attitude there, I mean, I'd, I'd come away from it and just think, I've, I've, I've wasted months in here and it's only been half an hour but it just, <laughs> it, it just it can feel so heavy and I think part of it is the anonymity of the web uh, um Jimmy Kimmel, the uh, the American uh, talk show host, he did this wonderful um, sketch uh, a couple of years ago where um, it, was, it was really a social experiment. And he got this baseball player that everyone in New York hated because he left the New York Yankees and he went to the Seattle Mariners. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's like a footballer going from, you know, Chelsea to Arsenal or mm-hmm. something, you know, they, they just you know, hate, hate each other. And, uh, and so what they did was they got a cardboard cutout of this baseball player onto the streets of New York. And, um, and they interviewed all these New Yorkers. And they said, yeah, the Seattle Mariners are coming and this player is going to be back. You know, what do you, what do you want to say to this player? And everyone to the cardboard cutout went, boo, you suck. And people were punching the, the cardboard cutout and things like that. And then, of course, the twist is the actual baseball player is behind the cardboard cutout. No way. He steps out. And what was fascinating is that every passerby then immediately like switches and says, "Oh, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Can I get a photograph?" And you know, it's like instantly because he's flesh and blood, yeah. the love comes out. Yeah. Because he's just an icon. I hate you. Yeah. I vent on you. And I think that's that's the world of social media. We just we we approach each other as these icons, and we just vent on these icons. And it's, it's, it's almost a spiritual discipline mm. to realize that when somebody's asking me this question, and they might be asking it in a really snarky way, but I don't know what day they've had. And, you know, they, they might have like, you know, three toddlers, kind of, you know, the whole room is full of puke and, you know, who knows what's going on in their life. Um, can I imagine that I'm actually talking to a flesh and blood person, which yeah. I actually am, uh, and engage with them as a flesh and blood person? Because, because we do treat people differently mm. when we're face to face. I guess it goes back to the famous New Testament quote about sharing the gospel with gentleness and, and respect. Right. Um, arguably, as you say, it somehow feels harder to do that in the online world. Yeah. And we, we are pattern-making creatures. And so when we see something, we plug that into this ideology and we think, oh, therefore, you believe X, Y, and Z. And they've only given me 140 characters. How do I know that? <laughs> yeah. you know? And just, just trying to stop dealing in pure ideology and start dealing in people uh, and, and sharing a bit of love. But I, I, I do have some confidence that there's a way to strike a tone 
um, that does make a difference. And so quite mm-hmm. often I just say, look, if you want to be a presence on, on, online, then like, just say you're a Christian in your bio and mm-hmm. don't be a jerk. Yeah. All right? That, that's like that's that's... 90% of the job. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, talking of, of the job of being, um, I, I mean, I, I refer to you a couple of times as an evangelist. I should right. ask you, do you like that label? Uh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I think it can be unhelpful. It can be unhelpful for me. To think, I am an evangelist. <laughs> da, 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 da. You know, like, you know, in the medieval church, there was the, 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 the very much the divide between there's the monks and nuns who are the really holy people, and then there's the rest of, mm. you know. And, and somehow I think in, in evangelical circles, we can have the same split. Yeah, still you know. suffer from that slightly. And, and both sides have a vested interest in the split. So I, like, I quite like, oh, I'm an evangelist, right? And, and other people quite like saying... I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> you know, um, God bless you, Glenn, in all your evangelistic you know, service, but you I know, don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And so if it ever becomes that, it's, it's really unhelpful. Ephesians 4 verse 11 says that evangelists have been given to equip the saints for their works of service. We, we think the evangelist faces the world. Actually, the job is for the evangelist to face the church and equip the church to be the evangelistic mm. body so, so that we go together. It seems to me like you've done quite a lot of different styles or methods, if I can put it that way. So you mentioned you will give kind of big evangelistic talks publicly where you'll speak. Yeah. Um, you've done the social media viral videos. Mm. Um, sometimes there's debates, especially around the kind of big let's give a 45-minute sermon to a bunch of non-Christians. A lot of people will say that just doesn't work anymore, and that mm-hmm. was great when Billy Graham came over and did a stadium, but really that's not where the culture's at. Do you mm-hmm. have any views on that? I believe in preaching, and I totally believe in events because I think faith is an event and conversion is an event and the gospel is an event in which you encounter Christ. So often if, if we just become all about process... Um, and just let's just have friendship evangelism. We just nudge people towards Christian faith, and that you know Jesus is over there, and we just nudge them a tiny little bit closer. If all our thinking is like that, we can start to believe that the gospel itself is a process. But the gospel itself is not a process. The gospel is death to life. Um, and so preaching and evangelistic events embody that theology and so i think there's absolutely a uh, a time and a place for that and and it's important that we not lose that and that we just you know Mm. continually do the process thing Mm. um but the event does not have to be wembley stadium Mm. you know we've got these perfectly good opportunities it's called church sunday morning 10 (laughs) a.m um it doesn't have to be whiz bang it doesn't have to be high tech um god's people living out the faith pointing to Jesus from Scripture. That's kind of the evangelistic strategy God has given us. Um, so I don't want to reinvent, reinvent the wheel. Um, and with all the social media stuff to, I'm doing, that's not because I don't think church is doing its job. Mm. The goal of all that is to get people hooked into mm. these local evangelistic bodies that are called churches. Mm. Um, so we mustn't you know, go over the heads of church mm. into the culture. Yeah. It's, all, it's always God's people en masse. You know, this is why I produce the social media for Christians, actually, because I want Christians to have shareable content. Yes. So I'm yeah. equipping the church to be an evangelist. Yes. So, so now you've got something to share on Facebook instead mm. of just the cat videos and, the, yes. you know, the sneezing panda or whatever. You know, <laughs> suddenly you've got something with a bit of Jesus in it. So I'm not just going over the head of church. It's, it's through church reaching into the culture mm. to bring them into a community in which they can encounter mm. Christ. Do you think then there's, a, there's too much um, scepticism and cynicism sometimes towards the, the bigger events? There can be. There can be. Um, and it, it can go either way. You can, you can sort of think, 
I remember Haringey when Billy Graham and tens of thousands, and to fixate on that methodology as though that's the thing. Mm. Um, but you can sort of do the inverse of that and sort of say, well, therefore, stadiums are no longer the thing. And, but then you can buy into this. I, I've, there's this new strategy, and it's all about, you know, <laughs> going into a cafe and just being really relational, contextualized, and missional, and, you know, you know drinking homebrew. <laughs> like, but that's just buying into another method, yeah. right? Um, so there's no silver bullet There's no silver bullet. Yeah. Arguably, people are looking for a silver bullet more than ever right. because every survey that comes out shows less people going to church. Every survey that comes mm. out shows less people are ticking an Anglican box, even though they may have done before. Right. I mean, people have attributed this to the death of nominalism. They've said that yeah. in years gone by, you would tick Anglican because you go to church once a year at Christmas, but yeah. you're not really sure if you believe in God. Whereas yeah. nowadays, people are more honest, and right. so um, they're just going to put atheist or nuns. They yeah. call it the rise of the nuns, which makes it sound like yeah, there's yeah. a number of women coming yeah. towards you from a Catholic now background. There's but the rise a of the scary rise film. Of the, the rise of the nuns actually is N O N E. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with the rise of, of the nuns, um, yeah, yeah. is this why people are kind of desperate for a silver bullet? Because all right. the news stories look very negative here, Glenn. What are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to do? Well, you abide in the vine and you bear fruit, right? You know. Um, the, that the, doesn't sound like a silver bullet. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And I'm always. I'm always wanting Jesus to give me the, the brick upon brick kind of building plan. You know, you just need this brick in place and that brick in place and that brick in place. But that could be a very impersonal way of building the kingdom. And actually what he says is, abide in me and my words will abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so it is this deeply relational thing. And, and, and that be, that's actually a scary answer because the scary answer is... The problem is not the nasty world out there. The problem is us, right? You know, and I can spend all my time saying, oh, secularism, and oh, the rise <laughs> of this, and oh, the rise of that. No, you're the problem. I'm the problem, right? Um, if the church is not being fruitful, like, don't, don't blame these other fruit trees. You know, don't, don't blame the thorns and the thistles that are out there. Blame the, you know, blame the branches that are not abiding in the vine. So, so there is a problem here, but the problem is not with the isms mm-hmm. and the ideologies that are out there. The problem is we really need to go back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we really need to evangelize ourselves mm-hmm. as Christians. I often say in personal evangelism training that the, you know, the real problem is not that you're not sharing Jesus on Monday morning. The real problem is you're not even talking to your Christian, you know, brother or sister on a Sunday, you know, after church, at the end of that service, you're talking about the football and the weather too, right? The same as the rest of the world. And the problem is not that you're not evangelizing your work colleague on Monday morning. You're not even evangelizing other Christians. It is a problem. But I, but I think that the number one thing we need to do is keep on evangelizing ourselves. And, and kind of what I try to do, you know, 321 is a gospel outline that I have come up with. And there's a book called 321. And so often people ask me, why have you written that book? And the first thing I say is so I can convert Christians. You know, um, I think we need to get back to a, a really Jesus-focused gospel, and then we'll have good news for the world. But that, that's, that's my methodology. You mentioned we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. I wonder if you're up for a challenge then, if I okay. give you, how, how long do you need? One right. minute? Two minutes? Okay. Shall I time you? Or for the gospel? I don't know. Do you want to time me? 
Yeah, all right. Let's go. Okay, let's time. do it. Okay, right. you okay. ready? I'm this ready. is this is Glenn's this is Glenn Scrivener. With, <laughs> this is Glenn Scrivener with the gospel. In the beginning, there was light and life and love. There was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit, and everything has come from light and life and love. And out of this has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that this world is not like that. I know this world is not like that. I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light, and when you turn from the light, where do you go but darkness and when you turn from love where else do you go but disconnection when you turn from life where else do you go but death so this is the kind of world we live in but what does what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble love says your pit will be my pit your plight will be my plight your debts will be my debts your darkness will be my darkness your death will be my death so who is jesus jesus is love come down the son of the father becomes our brother to be with us in the darkness, to take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, to even to take that death that we all deserve for turning from God, took that on himself on the cross, plunged it down into the hell that it deserves, and he rose up again to light and life and love, and he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life. We get his father as our father. We get his spirit as our spirit. We get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. So do you want Jesus? What was that? That was amazing. That was uh, one minute and 30 seconds. Okay. I'm very right. impressed. So is that, I mean, not only because... Can I, can I add you to my prayer letter? You know, you're like, <laughs> conversion. Sam Hales has come to Christ. Yes, that's it now. I'm there sold. Yes, I accept <laughs> the gospel. Um, that might have been slightly low-hanging fruit for you, though, because you're talking <laughs> to a, um, a presenter on Christian radio. But no, really impressive. I mean, I'm sure you're not expecting every Christian out there to share the gospel in one minute, 30 seconds in such a poetic fashion. You know, it would be artificial to crowbar that in to most conversations. But I think there are opportunities, and, and especially when someone asks you a question like suffering or something, to say, I, I've got an answer to your question, but can we press pause? And can I go to 30,000 feet? And can I give you the bird's eye view mm. of Christianity? Mm. Um, and then can we see how your yes. question plugs in? I don't think we do that enough. Mm, absolutely. And I, I wonder if that is because... Uh, a related problem is I wonder sometimes if if the average non-Christian, their perception of Christianity, often they think they know what it is. And yeah. they think it's oh, you, they you just yeah, yeah. be good and you follow Jesus and you get to heaven. Right, yeah. Which arguably is a massive distortion of the true gospel. It's, it's nothing like the true gospel. And, and, and we spend all our time trying to clarify issues on the periphery of Christianity. And we know that it's on the periphery of Christianity. But they, they think that's central. You know, it, I, mean, I mean, sex and sexuality is a, is a big thing like, uh, and a big example of where the culture just thinks that's the, set, that, you know, the heartbeat of, of Christi- Christianity is you know, no to sex. Right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And, then, and if we never go to 30,000 feet and tell the whole love story, yeah. and you know, they, they never get the idea that this is peripheral. You know, but for a Christian, like not just sexual ethics, ethics are peripheral yeah. to the Christian message. Yeah. The Christian message is a love story. Can I tell a love story? And then can we plug your question in? We need to do that a lot more, I think. Can I tell a love story about God and the world? Yeah, exactly. That's a wonderful place to leave it, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming in. If people want to find out more about you and your ministry and what you're up to, where should they go? Great. Uh, go to speaklife.org.uk or you can follow me uh, at Glenn Scrivener on Twitter. 
and those videos that Glenn mentioned in the earlier part of today's show, specifically the Christmas videos that he's launching, you may be interested to know the first one is actually due out this Monday. So if you head to the Speak Life Facebook page, you will be one of the first to watch the first of those four Christmas videos that Glenn has been working hard on to put together. Just before we go, final reminder that this show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, our special Christmas issue, why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample.